everybody, and welcome to our season three opener of the podcast, History Does You. Today, we'll be talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we had an interview with Pulitzer Prize winner Dr. Martin Sherwin, which I am very excited about. It's a great interview. And this is kind of the first episode we've done about nuclear weapons and policy. But I've always personally been kind of fascinated with the history of nuclear weapons and policy surrounding nuclear weapons, probably starting when my freshman year at college, I just took an entry level course on, you know, nuclear weapons and policy. And one of the things we focus on in particular was nuclear safety and mutually assured destruction. You know, starting with safety, we watched a documentary called Command and Control, um, there's a great book by um, Eric Schlauser, I think is, I don't know how you pronounce his last name, but also Command and Control, which focuses on the Damascus 4 explosion in Arkansas, I believe it was during the 1980s. But the incident essentially was a few technicians were doing maintenance on the missile and they accidentally dropped the wrench down the silo and it hit the area where the fuel is stored. And what followed was an explosion that pretty much obliterated the whole facility. And the warhead very fortunately did not go off, but it basically lays out all these incidents about, you know, how vulnerable we really are, especially as we move forward, you know, after the Cold War with so many old weapons that are so destructive, even to this day, you know, how you navigate those challenges. And then also, you know, with mutually assured destruction, you're focusing on the standpoint of, you know, this idea that, you know, if you fire a missile at us, you know, we fire a missile at you. It's basically the standoff with the most destructive weapon, you know, ever created by MAD. And so when it comes to, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, all of this theory, I think, was put to the test about as close as you possibly can. And in terms of historiography, there's a lot of great, you know, perspectives about the crisis, how it all arrived. You know, some historians argue that, you know, it started immediately after World War II with the atomic bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. You know, some argue that it started with the Cuban Revolution and the rise of Fidel Castro. You know, some will argue um, it started with Eisenhower when he decided to make nuclear weapons a core part of U.S. foreign policy. So there's all these different avenues. And, you know, in doing this episode, we didn't just focus on the crisis itself. Rather, we went all the way back to the start of the Second World War, which is really the start of nuclear weapons and policy and how, you know, navigate it in the context of the bipolar superpower system. So, you know, that's kind of context for what we're talking about. And, you know, again, you know, just for perspective, it's crazy to think how close we truly came to, you know, just blowing each other off the face of the earth in terms of it was literally people had their hands close to the button ready to push it. And, Again, just the fact that it really came down to sheer luck, there's no doubt a lot of important diplomacy and all that. But at the end of the day, you know, luck played a very important role in resolving this peacefully and quietly. And, you know, the fact that we almost stumbled in the World War III is an indictment of, you know, the craziness of the Cold War and the reality, you know, surrounding that conflict. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. We definitely explore a lot of different aspects of you know nuclear policy and weapons um, and then ultimately the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I hope you enjoy the episode and the interview. 
On today's episode, we welcome on Dr. Martin Sherwin. He is an author and historian specializing in the development of atomic weapons and nuclear policy. Along with Kai Bird, he co-wrote American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of Robert Oppenheimer, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Biography in 2006. In addition, he has advised a number of documentaries and television series relating to the Manhattan Project, including The Day After Trinity, A History of Nuclear Strategy, and War and Peace in the Nuclear Age. He also recently wrote Gambling with Armageddon, Nuclear Roulette from Hiroshima to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we'll be talking about today. So welcome on. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, Ronnie. And to start off, what is your favorite subject of history, the research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in atomic weapons and nuclear policy? If you're my age, you you couldn't you couldn't avoid nuclear weapons. I was brought up during the Cold War. I was a participant in duck and cover drills in grammar school. I I actually worked in the uranium mine between my freshman and sophomore years in college, the Lucky Mac uranium mine outside of Riverton, Wyoming. I'm not sure how that affected my interest in nuclear issues, but it's a fact. And as I mentioned in the early part of Gambling with Armageddon, I was the air intelligence officer in my squadron in the Navy during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the crisis began for me when I was told to retrieve the top secret orders from my safe and bring them to the skipper's office and brief the skipper on where we were going for nuclear war. As I said, none of us in the air intelligence section ever expected to open those top secret envelopes. We joked that there were clippings from the New York Times in them, <laughs> but there weren't. It was, it was the real thing. So with those experiences, I went off to graduate school and began to study early American history, but slowly realized my interests were far more contemporary and began to take courses on the nuclear issue was involved in Richard Rosecrans's, let's see, what was it called? National Security Studies Seminar. And I wrote my dissertation on building and using the atomic bomb from the point of view of the scientists, which became my first book, A World Destroyed, and uh, which is still in print, by the way. <laughs> anyway. What are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered uh, in your field, whether it was writing this recent book or anything in general? Well, you know, historians are always facing the challenge of finding the documents that are most relevant to their subject. When you are dealing with nuclear issues and contemporary, relatively speaking, contemporary history, the challenges of getting the information you're looking for are much greater than when I was studying colonial history. So that's the real challenge. And one of the most helpful organizations in trying to overcome that challenge is the National Security Archive at uh, George Washington University. The name sounds like it's an official government organization, but it's exactly the opposite. It's an organization that uses the Freedom of Information Act to declassify documents that have been, many of them, erroneously classified during the Cold War. And to kind of 
get into sort of the lead up to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we'll uh, be talking about. You've written extensively about Robert Oppenheimer, who was one of the key members of the Manhattan Project. Did he and other scientists kind of foresee the potential consequences of creating such a powerful weapon, or were they kind of blinded by their scientific process? Well, I think both things are true in the following way. They were blinded in the sense of, well, no, I'm going to back up. Blinded is the wrong word. They were never blind to the consequences. They understood the consequences from the beginning. But the scientific process, the challenge of actually getting from theory to a practical weapon did catch them up in the challenge of trying to make this weapon and make a weapon that worked. But they all along recognized that this was going to change the world. And there were two different points of view. One was do not use atomic weapons because that will inevitably lead to an arms race. Oppenheimer was on the opposite end of the argument, saying you need to use the atomic weapons to show the world how dangerous they are, and then the governments of the world will unite in some kind of an organization or condominium to prevent the what others call the inevitable arms race. I think Oppenheimer was wrong. The other scientists like Leo Szilard, who argued against using the bomb, were correct. And starting sort of the end of World War II, how did the atomic bombs end up impacting specifically U.S.-Soviet relations? And do you think the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki played a role in starting the Cold War? To start with Your last question, the answer is absolutely yes. There's a wonderful book by, a very important book by David Holloway at Stanford University called Stalin and the Bomb. And he makes it very clear in that book through researching documents that Stalin believed that the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were warnings to the Soviet Union you're next if you don't behave yourself, if you don't respond to American desires for organizing Europe in a particular way. And uh, there's no question that nuclear weapons were central to the origins of the Cold War and to how the Cold War played out. What role did policymakers believe nuclear weapons would play during the Cold War? Did they envision them solely for military use, or did they see other avenues for using it in foreign policy? They saw it as a full-spectrum, useful advantage. They would be used militarily if the Soviet Union crossed certain red lines, and they were tremendous leverage in diplomatic negotiations. Nuclear threats were at the forefront of American policy. And one of the interesting things of when you look at the evolution of policy, as I do in Gambling with Armageddon, where I call the Cuban Missile Crisis the long Cuban Missile Crisis, that it really began with Hiroshima. And it evolved 
until 1962. Truman saw nuclear weapons as a very important backup, so to speak, for his policies. He implied certain threats, like during the 1948 Berlin airlift. He sent B-29 bombers that allegedly were nuclear weapons capable to Britain as a signal to the Soviets that he might use these things. But they were always a backup. And he insisted that the president, and only the president, could authorize nuclear weapons use. Fast forward to the Eisenhower administration. Eisenhower comes in in January 20th, 1953. There are about 1,200 nuclear weapons in the American arsenal. And he comes up with this plan for massive retaliation and brinksmanship. John Foster Dulles is his spokesman, but it's Eisenhower who is promoting and manipulating this policy. And he moves nuclear weapons into the forefront of American foreign policy and military policy. And seven and a half years later, when Eisenhower is ready to leave the presidency, the 1,200 nuclear weapons of 1953 have grown into a stockpile of 22,000 nuclear weapons plus. So that really begins the Cold War. And Eisenhower has promoted the idea that nuclear weapons are the sine qua non of diplomacy. And Khrushchev essentially copies as best he can what Eisenhower has promoted. And there is the origins of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And generally, how did the Cuban Revolution impact the Cold War in the context of U.S.-Soviet relations? And how big a role did Fidel Castro play in the lead up to the crisis? Well, of course, there would have been no Cuban Missile Crisis without the Cuban Revolution. And that point has been made by many other historians, most importantly by Frusenko and Naftali in their book, One Hell of a Gamble, where they argue that the Cuban Missile Crisis began with the Cuban Revolution. But that does not explain why Khrushchev, in trying to protect Castro from an American invasion of Cuba, chose to secretly transport nuclear weapons, uh, medium-range ballistic missile weapons and intermediate-range ballistic missile weapons to Cuba as a way to protect him. The reason he did that is because he simply emulated what Eisenhower had done in Europe. Eisenhower, after Sputnik, had sent Jupiter missiles which are intermediate-range missiles, to Italy and Turkey. Turkey is 130 miles from Soviet territory. Khrushchev used to gather American journalists at his dacha on the Black Sea and you know, tell them, give them a pair of binoculars and say, what do you see out there? And, well, Walter Lippmann, for example, who was one of those journalists, said, I see nothing. And Khrushchev said, let me have those binoculars. And Khrushchev said, well, Mr. Lippmann, 
I see American missiles 130 miles from the Soviet Union. What are those things doing there? Why are you threatening us with those weapons? So, you know, that provided a template, so to speak, for Khrushchev to put these weapons in Cuba. Castro, of course, does play a role. First, he had to agree to accept the weapons. And then during the crisis, he plays a role in terms of what he actually does. But we can get into that a little bit later. And in the immediate aftermath of the Cuban Revolution, there was the Bay of Pigs invasion and later the Berlin Wall crisis. Did those two events sort of increase the tension between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and the lead up to the Cuban Missile Crisis? Well, the Bay of Pigs was absolutely critical. And the Bay of Pigs was the reason that Khrushchev put the missiles in Cuba. I would say without the Bay of Pigs, there would have been no Cuban Missile Crisis. Bay of Pigs for those who are not familiar with it, was an invasion of Cuba by CIA-trained anti-Castro Cubans, about, I think there were about 900 of them, maybe twice that number, but about 900, let's say about 1,000 Cubans. And they were defeated within a couple of days. It was, the invasion started on April 17th, 1961. Kennedy had warned the CIA that he was not going to authorize American troops into Cuba to back up these invaders if they failed. The CIA didn't believe him. Anti-Castro forces went in. They were defeated. Kennedy refused to send American troops. Khrushchev assumed that This was an indication that Kennedy was uh, not strong enough because Khrushchev had sent troops into Hungary, you remember, in 1956 when he faced something analogous. But of course, Khrushchev was wrong. It took twice the courage not to send American troops in as almost any other president would have. That was the standard fallback position. But Kennedy had said he was not going to do it, and he didn't do it. And it showed that he had the backbone to maintain his his word. But Khrushchev believed that there was no question, but that Kennedy would find an excuse to send American troops into Cuba in the next year or so. And that's why he sent the missiles to Cuba. So the Bay of Pigs was absolutely essential. The Bay of Pigs suggested that the Kennedy administration would do whatever it could to get rid of this communist government 90 miles from its shore. And as the crisis came near in 1962, what were each country's nuclear capabilities? At that time, did one country have a superior arsenal than the other? Yes. The United States had a huge military advantage. The Soviets knew this, and the United States knew it, but neither the United States nor the Soviet Union realized how huge the American advantage was. 
And to get into the crisis itself, can you just briefly lay out kind of the sequence of events during the crisis for our listeners? Sometime in the spring of 1962, Khrushchev concluded that he had to do something fast to protect his new best friend, Fidel Castro. He considered a variety of options. But then looking at those missiles in Turkey, he decided this was the best option. He would sneak these missiles into Cuba and it would have, when he was successful, as he expected to be, a multitude of advantages. It would protect Castro. It would help close the missile gap. As I said, the Soviet Union knew it was far behind the United States in its ability to deliver nuclear weapons onto the territory of the United States compared to how many weapons the United States could deliver onto the territory of the Soviet Union. So you have this situation where the two superpowers are, you know, sort of locked in this nuclear arms race and contention, you know, for Cuba. So sometime late in the spring, early summer, Operation Anadir, which is the name that was given to the shipment of weapons and troops to Cuba, begins. Anadir is the name of a river in the far north reaches of Siberia. And many of the troops were issued winter gear. So as a way of covering up where they were going. Over the course of the summer and in September, there were about 180 Soviet freighters going back in uh, 180 trips, delivering troops and weapons conventional weapons, aircraft, and missiles hidden in the holds of some of the ships. And this goes on into early October. On October 14th, a U-2 flight over Cuba, a reconnaissance flight, takes photographs that are developed on the 15th and analyzed. And on the night of the 15th, the Photo interpreters are absolutely certain that they have discovered medium-range missile sites being constructed. McGeorge Bundy, the national security advisor for President Kennedy, is called at home that night. The next morning at 9 o'clock, Bundy goes to the White House and goes up to the family quarters and informs the president that those missiles, that Senator Keating, a Republican, had been saying for at least a month were there, and the administration was denying it because they said there was no proof of that, that the missiles were there, the U-2 had discovered them, and that's the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Tuesday morning, October 16th. What was kind of the initial reaction of the Kennedy administration when the missile sites uh, were first discovered? What did they think, you know, the best initial response would be? Robert Kennedy said, 
shit, 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 those Soviet bastards. <laughs> uh, well, Kennedy felt, John Kennedy felt he was stabbed in the back. Khrushchev had clearly manipulated him. He had assured Kennedy that the military equipment being sent to Cuba was defensive only. And in Khrushchev's mind, they were defensive only. Uh, he didn't intend to use these missiles to attack the United States. He intended to use these missiles to prevent the United States from attacking Cuba. So, you know, Kennedy gathers together his 14 or so advisors. They become called the Executive Committee of the National Security Council, the XCOM, and they begin to discuss what they're going to do. And at the end of the first meeting, which uh, occurs on Monday, October 16th, from 11 o'clock to about 1230, they decide they're going to have to bomb the missile sites maybe even invade Cuba. And something very lucky happens that day. Adlai Stevenson, the American ambassador to the United Nations, who has a much less hawkish view towards the Soviet Union than the Kennedy administration in general, happens to have an appointment with the president for lunch that day. And after lunch, Kennedy takes him up to the family quarters and shows him the pictures, the U-2 photos, and says, we're going to have to bomb or invade. And Stevenson says, no, 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 no. This is a very bad idea. We don't have to do that at all. One thing will escalate into another, and you could start World War III that way. This can be solved diplomatically. And we know everything Stevenson said to Kennedy because he sent a memo summarizing their conversation the next day, or summarizing his views. Over the course of a day or two, Stevenson's memo and his conversation with Kennedy begin to sink in, and Kennedy slowly moves away from what most of his advisors are urging him to do, bomb or invade, and moves to the idea of a blockade which he believes is a, let's call it a less, certainly less bloody way of signaling the Soviet Union that those missiles have to go. And maybe just to back up a little to kind of focus on Fidel Castro, how big of a role did he play in encouraging the Soviets to place the missiles? And as the crisis began, what were his kind of views on, you know, what was going on? Well, Castro was, first of all, played a role in accepting the weapons. He didn't particularly want them, but since Khrushchev offered them, he said, you know, okay. It's an interesting conversation. He's offered the missiles and he said, okay, I'll take them, you know, to do my duty to the socialist world revolution. And one of the participants says, no, no, Fidel, this is for you. This is not for the, you know, global revolution. And Fidel, who is a, you know, at this point, a very young ideologue and no, no, I'm taking them for the socialist revolution. <laughs> not for me. I don't need them. But if it's going to help socialism, uh, I'll accept them. Anyway, so he accepts the missiles and 
The other role he plays is that he is convinced that the United States is going to invade Cuba. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that the Kennedy administration was in fact planning to invade Cuba. And of course, Fidel has, you know, spies all over Miami and other sources. So he encourages Khrushchev to worry that there's going to be an invasion, which of course encourages Khrushchev to send the missiles. During the crisis, Castro plays a critical role in that by the, we're getting a little ahead of the story now, but that's okay. By the end of the crisis, he's promoting the Soviets to use their surface-to-air missiles to shoot down any U-2 that comes over Cuba. And in fact, that encouragement certainly plays into the Saturday afternoon, October 27th, shootdown of an American U-2, piloted by Rudolf Anderson, who is the one casualty during that week, during the crisis. Also, finally, on Saturday night, Castro writes a letter to Khrushchev in which he says, if the Americans invade Cuba, you should fire your missiles at them because, in effect, he's assuming the Americans will invade Cuba and they'll also fire missiles at the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union should go first. And Khrushchev reads this note and he says, Castro didn't understand anything. These missiles were not sent to Cuba to start a war. They were sent to Cuba to prevent a war. And so between encouraging the shooting down of the U-2 and his, you know, letter, Castro, well, frightens Khrushchev to death. And Khrushchev, in effect, panics. In fact, one of the Soviet memoirs of this crisis by one of the members of Khrushchev's close inner circle says, Khrushchev shit in his pants and broadcasts over Radio Moscow the acceptance of what was the public deal that had come to the fore by October 27th, which was Kennedy promises the United States will not invade Cuba and Khrushchev, on the basis of that, will remove his missiles from Cuba. But there's one other thing that is kept secret. Khrushchev had also demanded that the United States remove its missiles from Turkey, those Jupiters I talked about earlier. And Kennedy's advisors all uniformly said, you can't do it. You can't do that. You can't do that. But Kennedy was determined, as he said, we are not going to have a very good war if the world knows is all we had to do was take these useless missiles out of Turkey and exchange them for those very useful missiles in Cuba. So he makes a secret deal, sends his brother Bobby to talk to Dobrynin, the Soviet ambassador, and Bobby assures Dobrynin that the missiles will be out of Turkey within three months, but it's a secret deal. 
and it has nothing to do with the Cuban Missile Crisis. They're just going to disappear. And that's how the crisis comes to an end. And throughout kind of the blockade and the crisis, was there a divide between the military and civilian leadership in the Kennedy administration over the actual use of military force against Cuba or the Soviet Union? Actually not. Most of Kennedy's advisors were just as hawkish as the military, although most of them went in and out of urging bombing and invasion. The military, the Joint Chiefs, on the other hand, were full in and never out. They wanted from the beginning to bomb and invade Cuba. One of the most interesting chapters in the book, I think, is the description of the meeting on Friday morning, the 19th, I believe it was, between Kennedy and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, where they explain to the president why he should invade, and he explains to them why that's a very bad idea. I should also say, just to get the chronology straight, there are really two Cuban Missile Crises. We talk about the crisis as the 13 days. Well, it was 13 days for the United States from the morning of October 16th to the morning of Sunday morning, October 28th, when Khrushchev's announcement uh, reaches the United States at 9 a.m. Washington time. Between October 16th and October 22nd, the Soviet Union has no idea that the United States has discovered these missiles in Cuba. That first part of the crisis, which is the United States crisis, where Kennedy and his advisors are deciding what they're going to do, ends at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday night, October 22nd, when Kennedy gives his speech announcing the blockade. So for the Soviet Union, the crisis lasts from Monday night, which at seven o'clock, which is about two or three in the morning in Moscow, until Sunday when Kennedy accepts Khrushchev's offer. Throughout the crisis, did any organization or country outside of the three involved play a role in facilitating diplomatic talks, or did they kind of resolve it through normal diplomatic channels? You know, the United Nations played a large role in the public phase of the crisis. So as I explained, you know, there's an initial, let's call it the private phase or the U.S. private phase, and then the public phase. So everybody was panicked that World War III was going to begin. So lots of countries tried to play a role. Brazil tried to play a, a major role by trying to act as a conduit between the United States and Castro. James Hirschberg at George Washington has written in some detail about the Brazilian effort. Kennedy was in constant touch in the public phase with Prime Minister McMillan. He called him every night. So the Brits were definitely, you know, involved. Of course, Turkey was involved because we were going to take our missiles out of there. And they weren't exactly cooperative, but we essentially bought them off 
in the end by providing them with all kinds of additional military equipment that they wanted. Italy was very cooperative. They had Jupiter missiles, and they were just so happy to get rid of them. <laughs> that, uh, uh, you know, just take them, get them, get them out of here. They've been causing us nothing but political problems. China played a role in the sense that Khrushchev and Mao were on very bad terms, and China was constantly harassing Khrushchev for being soft. And ultimately, how close did the crisis lead to a direct nuclear exchange? Were there any points that there was a specific incident where someone almost fired a missile or there was almost you know, a direct you know, exchange of nuclear weapons? I think we came as close to nuclear war as I hope we will ever come. And that was not because the leadership of the major powers wanted a war. Neither Kennedy nor Khrushchev wanted a war. Both of them were terrified of the idea of sliding into a war. But when you have a global confrontation like that, there are a lot of activities going on that could create a war. And gambling with Armageddon opens up with a very detailed, exciting set of chapters about these four Soviet submarines, which unknown to the United States, each had a nuclear tip torpedo, how these four Soviet diesel submarines were being harassed by, on the blockade line, were being harassed by American anti-submarine warfare forces. And one of the submarines that was having depth charges blowing up around it, not depth charges that could destroy the submarine, but they didn't know that. They were smaller depth charges, and one skipper of a destroyer had his crew members throw grenades overboard. He was convinced that the Americans were trying to kill him. And there is this moment on Saturday, October 27th, where he tells the, the KGB officers in charge of the nuclear tip torpedo to load the torpedo. And he says, while we're doing somersaults down here, there's probably a war going on up there. We're not going to be the disgrace of the Soviet Navy. We're going to die, but we're going to kill them all. And it is a matter of sheer luck that aboard that submarine, by chance, was another naval officer who was equal in rank to the captain, who was a much cooler head, who talked him out of firing that torpedo. And it's a very dramatic story, which I am incapable of describing in words, but I think I describe it in writing very dramatically. And we came very, very close. And in fact, Khrushchev was absolutely certain that, you know, war was going to break out at almost any minute, which is why he announces his willingness to take the missiles out of Cuba, why he announces it over Radio Moscow, rather than sending a diplomatic note to Kennedy. And to ask just some concluding questions, in the aftermath of the crisis, what consequences did it have for Cuba, the Soviet Union, and the United States? I think the consequences are profound. 
I would divide the Cold War into two major segments with respect to nuclear weapons. The 17 years from 1945 to the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis and from 1962, the end of 62, to the end of the Cold War. Until the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was this belief, as I said earlier, promoted initially by the Eisenhower administration, that nuclear weapons could be used effectively as threats for diplomacy, that they could be employed if necessary in, you know, in war. The United States, remember, has always had a first-use policy for nuclear weapons. And afterwards, while threats and everything else sort of continued, there was a recognition that there must be rules to this game or else we are going to be back in the Cuban Missile Crisis soup again and again, and we're not going to be as lucky the next time. And so right after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Partial Test Ban Treaty is signed in 1963. And that begins the process of creating a series of arrangements between the United States and the Soviet Union creating what essentially rules of the game, limits on this kind of weapon, you know, balance, numbers, et cetera, et cetera. So most of the Cold War is from 63 onward, is played out in the shadow of the Cuban Missile Crisis with a a constant awareness of the lessons you know, that are drawn from that. Overall, what do you think the legacy of the Cuban Missile Crisis is? Well, pretty much what I just said, that an awareness that even if you don't want a war, it is possible to be blindsided into one, to slip into one, to be forced into one, that nuclear weapons are a constant threat to really the existence of humanity. And, you know, we better take the lesson of the Cuban Missile Crisis to bed with us every night and wake up with it every morning when you're making policy. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Uh, Sherwin. You know, I know I did. I really enjoy looking at again, nuclear weapons and policy. And I think it's interesting, you know, looking specifically at the Cuban Missile Crisis and today, how we sort of navigate, you know, nuclear weapons and nuclear policy. Um, Because today, you know, there are a lot more countries that possess nuclear weapons. There's the danger of using uh, nuclear weapons uh, for terrorism or other nefarious actors using it to start a war or whatnot. So, I mean, in some ways, I think, you know, the challenges we face today in terms of safety, in terms of the chances of an incident starting a war are much greater than they were during the Cold War, because you basically only had the US and the Soviet Union. But the Cuban Missile Crisis also shows how close and how dangerous these situations are when you're dealing with 
you know, such destructive weapons. You know, conventional wars between great powers in a lot of ways have been nullified because of nuclear weapons, because, you know, a conventional army can be destroyed with one weapon. There are all these um, sorts of challenges. And again, from a safety perspective, the U.S. trying to, you know, lower the amount of weapons we have is a huge challenge because you have aging systems, you have warheads that have to be stored safely for many, many decades before they are, you know, considered safe. You know, you also have Russia that, although is generally a stable country, given that, you know, Vladimir Putin is able to control the military and all that. It doesn't take that much for people to take a warhead. Again, there are you know smaller regional powers, specifically in the Middle East, such as you know uh, Israel that possesses a weapon. You have Iran um, trying to develop a weapon. You also have Pakistan and India, which are arch rivals and arch enemies in a lot of ways that both possess uh, nuclear weapons. So again, I think just in the context of looking at the Cuban Missile Crisis and today. We face, I think, a lot of challenges, a lot more challenges, I think, than back then. But also, again, the Cuban Missile Crisis shows what can happen when superpowers and countries that possess these weapons stumble um, in the conflict, intentionally or unintentionally. So again, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope it gives you know perspective on how close we were to blowing the world up. But again, I think it's a fascinating story and again shows the terror of nuclear weapons. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.